Better Call Saul Season 2, Episode 2 is over, but we are just getting started here on the Better Call Saul Recap Show on Post Show Recaps. And now, here are the guys who are going to be skipping dessert tonight. I'm Rob Sestrini. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Just tonight, Rob? I think I'm out for at least a week. (laughs) At least a week. How long does it take for a mental image to get out of your head, Rob? A long time. Yeah. A long time. (laughs) We are out. We're out on the pie. Sorry. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. No no cobbler, no pie. Nothing that uh, anyone could sit in. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Wow. We have got... Yeah, if I get a dessert, I'm the first question I'm asking the waiter is, can someone sit in this? And if they say yes, it's out. Yeah, no good. <laughs> All right, so we have a lot to talk through. I thought that was a very fun episode of Better Call Saul. I feel like that that's pretty much, I mean, I'm sure that there will be higher highs along the way, I feel like, in this season. But I feel like if you're looking for a Better Call Saul episode, I feel like that this is pretty much a good template of a uh, four-star episode. I think that's right. I think you're right. I think it, it captures the the sort of tonal things that this show can do, where you've got a little bit of the the fun crime element, but a little bit of the edge with that. You've got the funny comedy. You've also got the kind of sadness and darkness that's in Jimmy McGill. There's just a lot going on, and it's really balanced tonally very well in this episode. I like that we got Jimmy and Mike working together on something also here in this episode. I thought we got a good follow up with what was going on with Daniel from last week. So all in all, I thought this was a really good outing for Better Call Saul. I agree completely. And I think that it's uh, it's really encouraging to see that all Mike really has to do is make a phone call to Jimmy and Jimmy's on board uh, for, you know, seemingly very little reason other than he wants to be Jimmy McGill uh, as much as he wants to be slipping Jimmy. Uh, he's kind of wearing two hats. So I think that's great. I think that really opens the door for a lot more. Uh, Mike knows he can make those calls to Jimmy in the moment. So we're going to get a lot more of those calls, I think. And I'm excited about that. All right. So we're going to talk through all of that from this episode. We're going to answer some questions along the way in terms of setup for this show that you're not crazy if you are looking for a video version of this podcast and cannot find one, uh, much like when Daniel was looking for his baseball cards. No, it is not there. It's not there. Oh, we're not. We're not making videos tonight, Rob. No, we're not making videos uh, for anybody. For anybody, uh, it's too bad. I'm going to take my costume off then. Yeah, for any of our, I guess uh, for some of our art patrons, but yes. uh, no. So we are not going to be making a video anymore unless you know something really crazy happens. Uh, probably not until the finale. Will we make another live show? And I think that's fine because we had some time to really uh, digest this, much like a fine dessert cobbler. And we were able to then uh, come up with some more interesting things about the episode to not be live right after it. Yeah, I mean, it takes a little time to digest, Rob. <laughs> yes, it does. It really does. It doesn't, uh, you know, you got to sit on it for a minute and just let it kind of play out. And also, thanks to everybody. We have a lot of new subscribers coming on. I saw our Better Call Saul post-show recap was floating around in the uh, top charts for TV and film. So thanks, everybody, who came on board. If you're listening and not a subscriber and you'd like to be, Go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes, and we do greatly appreciate it if you leave us feedback and star ratings, because that also helps us out in the charts. All right, Antonio, I guess why don't we start with sort of the 
Kimmy and Jimmy story because I felt like for the first time and we were sort of like on the fence last week of what does Kim see in Jimmy does she look at him as a go the distance kind of guy or is this sort of like a hookup and we sort of saw it go both ways much like Chuck's metronome (laughs) we saw it shift from one side to the other where it really seemed like that she was full on in love with Jimmy or at least seriously crushing on Jimmy earlier in the episode and maybe might be out of that with Jimmy by the end of the episode. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, look, she has to know what she's getting into on one level. This is the guy who just ran the Ken Wynn scheme with her, and she knows a little bit about what he is in terms of the slip and Jimmy. She knows that he's a little bit of a hustler and that he's a little kind of morally loose in that way. And and by the way, by the end of the episode, she's buying into the story that, that Jimmy fabricated. But when she finds out that he fabricated the evidence, she has a problem. And this is it. I mean, for Kim, she really has to kind of figure out what what is she on board for? Uh, and she you know says, "Don't tell me about this sort of thing." I think it's fascinating, Rob, because I you know we're in the Breaking Bad universe. Better Call Saul is not happening in the in a vacuum, and so there have to be comparisons with Jimmy's moral character and Walt's moral character and Skyler uh, and Kim and the way that kind of people support their partners in their relationships. And Vince Gilligan took a lot of heat for his writing of Skyler. Uh, people didn't like Skyler; they really hated her online. There was a lot of bad backlash. And I think people are responding a lot better to Kimmy. And I think that that's interesting um, because Kim is really being supportive of Jimmy, but also against a lot of what he's doing. So it's fascinating. It's also, I I don't know how you feel about this. I think it's going to be tragic. I just think it's going to be so sad when this doesn't work because they really are good together. The last lines of the episode, she says to Jimmy, I don't want to hear about this sort of thing ever again. And he says to her simply, you won't, which I think is a very telling line. And he's not saying to her, oh my God, I am so sorry. Look, this was sort of fun or whatever. I did my friend a favor, but I'm not doing this anymore. He says very specifically, you won't to her saying, I don't want to hear about this anymore. And to me, I felt like that's very clear that he's saying to her, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm just not going to tell you about it anymore. Yeah, well, let's be honest. What did she say? She didn't say, don't do this sort of thing anymore. She said, I don't want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. So I think she's she knows what's going on. She knows that Jimmy is Jimmy and that, he, that part of his character is this sort of edgy thing. And what she's kind of interested in poking around at is why. Why does he want to do this? What's so, you know, thrilling about it? What is it that makes him want to sacrifice or risk everything that he's got? This up and up kind of world that he's living in now for what? For a friend, for just the thrill of it. And she's really poking around at that. And I, I think that she knows that that's a much bigger answer that he's not, not even able to give at the end of this episode. She asks him that why question and he's silent. So I, I think, yeah, that's there. I think it was also really interesting in the episode when he's talking about how he's doing so good at the new firm at Davis and Maine and they're going to look at a house and she's using the term we she's really thrown around the we yep. word a lot and so we should get a smoker we should you know drink wine on the patio and she's really I think imagining herself in this lifestyle and then when she finds out about this story of what Jimmy did it's like so mind boggling for her of like, why would you potentially be throwing everything away? She can't wrap her head around what Jimmy is doing or why he might do this. But are you seeing 
why Jimmy is doing this stuff. I think that that's the central kind of question of the show. I mean, I think that that is certainly of the character, right? Is, is what drives him? What makes him want to be slipping Jimmy? Why is he more motivated by successful cons than he is by successful work as a lawyer? What is it that fuels that fire inside him that makes uh, Chuck call him uh, like a monkey with the machine, a chimp with the machine gun and why he doesn't want him to practice law, that he'll always be slipping Jimmy for all of Chuck's flaws. Chuck maybe has really correctly assessed that, that on the inside, Jimmy is always going to want to be this kind of guy who's getting one over on somebody. And that if he's practicing law straightforward, that's not what he is. And so that why question, uh, I think, is a very interesting one that I think it's interesting that it's important for us to kind of toss over as viewers as we watch the show. I think the getting at the why of Saul Goodman is a very important thing that this show is doing. And I think that that's a that's a tough question to ask, answer at this point. And you're right. She was all in. Like She really did want to get the smoker and get the lifestyle. She was doing that thing that I love that women do where she's wearing his like University of American Samoa yep. law sweatshirt. Uh, she's in his gear like this is they're in like they're eating pie together. Um, she's even laughing at the story. But when it goes too far and she can't understand it, it, it becomes a problem. But like I said, she doesn't say don't ever do that again. She says, I don't want to hear about it. So I think that that's interesting. I think Kim is a very strong, empowered, uh, great character. And I think that it, it will really be sad. I'm, I'm a little worried, Rob, because when they were making the, the kind of jokes and she said takes the cake or whatever, and he was very upset. She didn't say takes the pie. She said, I may as well go throw myself off the roof. Do you think we're going to that were that was some sort of foreshadowing oh, that no, we're headed in that direction? So. I didn't read I into it either. that yeah. much. But, you know, when we're talking about picking apart those two lines of I don't want to hear about this sort of thing ever again. And he says you won't. I think that the nuance was on his line that I feel like for Kim, I don't feel like she was saying, I don't want to hear about it. I think that what her line, she could have just as easily said that I don't want you doing this stuff anymore. I don't think that she's looking at it like, okay, do whatever you want. Sort of like the Carmela Tony thing. Of, as long as I don't know about it, it's fine. I, I feel like that she really is saying, don't do this anymore. I think that she just happened to say, I don't want to hear about this anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I think that, I mean, every word that's written in the show is written with a purpose. And I think that there's a reason why it was a little more open-ended mm -hmm. than, uh, than just saying, don't do this anymore. I can, your read, I think, is totally appropriate. And it, and it may be the, the people that are listening are on Team Rob on this one, and that's totally fine. And, I, and I'm not saying Kim is, is saying, you have a license to do what you want. I just don't want to know about it. But I think that it's written in such a way that it is more open-ended and that she's not living his life for him. I think that that's a criticism and one of the reasons that people would turn against a character uh, like Kim is, is basically saying, don't keep him from being what he is. Uh, work with him, live with him, you know, learn with him, love with him, whatever, uh, but don't push back against him and try to run his life for him. I think that's when people start getting angry at a, at a character for no reason because she's totally right to tell him, don't do this anymore. Like, <laughs> he doesn't need to be doing this. It's a, it's a very bad mistake on his part, but he wants to be doing it. And so I think that I think there's a reason it's more open ended, though I agree that that your take is certainly valid. Thank you, Antonio. I yeah, think, my pleasure, Rob. I do think that the line was written that way so that he would be able to give that answer to her that was sort of ambiguous and that you could end on that. 
I'm not sure if the, and maybe it was that the ambiguity was intended for her delivery of the line as well. Yeah. I'm, I, I guess we'll just, this is something we can kind of track going forward is where, what is her stance on these sorts of issues? She enjoyed the con with, uh, with Kevin wins or with Ken wins. That's what Jimmy says to her. You yeah, like he, this. He brings it right up, right? That's the first thing he brings out when she starts coming at him with it. And to be fair, she doesn't say like, no, I didn't, you know, she doesn't run away from that. So that was different. Uh, yeah, that was a little different. It was a little different. It weren't fabricate. You weren't fabricating evidence. But Rob, I mean, I, I, as a lawyer, I can tell you, like, there isn't that much difference between totally fabricating the story and making the tape. It's like sort of the cherry on top of the pie, Rob, <laughs> making the video. It really is. Like, it is. Uh, it's. It's not. It, it isn't too much farther in terms of being unethical uh, and trending into falsification of evidence, um, telling the story and acting like this, this is what happened. It's not actually making the thing, but ethically, he's already around the bend uh, and she's fine laughing that off. So I don't know. It is a interesting place for someone to draw the line for sure. Because to me, just going back to the scene earlier in the episode with Howard and Chuck, when Howard comes by giving Chuck the update, the Chuck check of here's what's going on yes. with Jimmy. Oh, and by the way, he's now at Davis and Maine and Kim was the one she actually pushed really hard for this. And to me, it seems like that this might've been Kim's master plan all along that I'm going to make a decent guy out of Jimmy by the end of this. I'm going to put him in this soft landing place where he's going to be able to do great and have this great job. And maybe he's ultimately going to be this person that I can sort of settle down with. And that Jimmy has completely thrown a monkey wrench into this potentially by going down this path and starting to falsify evidence and get involved with all these shady individuals. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something to that. She doesn't bring that up. Like I stuck my neck out for you and you're, you're screwing me over here. Like she doesn't bring that out onto the table when they are having their discussion at the end of the episode. But I do think that there's something to that for sure. And I think that I think it's also that she just can't fathom. I mean, keep in mind, she wants to, she wanted to be on partner track at HHM. That's her goal. When Jimmy in season one is trying to get her to leave the practice and join him in practice, she's basically like, no, this is the decision I've made. This is my life. I'm going to try to be partner at HHM. I'm working my way up there. And that's that. And I think for someone like her, whose life's dream was probably to be a lawyer and she's motivated to do that, I don't think she can fathom why somebody who is having the success that he's having, he's on the partner track. He's essentially ahead of her in, in the career at this point, even though, you know, they kind of came up together from the mailroom. I, I don't think she can fathom how he would jeopardize that and risk that because it is so important to her. So it's not just that she put her neck out there for him. It's that this is also very important career wise for her, what she's doing at work. And when she sees him not putting the same value on his ability to do that, I think that she really questions it. In terms of Jimmy and Kim, there's a moment in the episode where she gives him a present. She gives him a thermos that says, world's second greatest lawyer and in jimmy's old car that thermos fits perfectly and again that's the most annoying thing if you have a cup that doesn't fit in the cup holder fits perfectly in the old jimmy mcgill car he gets the new company car he gets the mercedes from davison maine that cup that thermos that's from kim no longer fits in that car what does that 
symbolize to you? Does that mean that Kim doesn't fit in this new world that he's living in? I think there's a whole lot of misfitting going on there. And I think that that's part of it. I think there's also a lot of yellow in that scene. The cup is yellow. The old landlord lady there at the nail salon is in a yellow shirt. His old car is yellow. And I think that that all represents kind of his old life and this new life. Uh, also doesn't really fit Jimmy. Uh, he's not really fitting in in the corporate world. He's not happy. This is not something in big law that he necessarily feels comfortable in such that, you know, when given the opportunity to be slipping Jimmy, he's right back to it. Uh, and he's happy keeping these two things separate. And he's willing to jeopardize it because he's we, we know who, who this guy becomes, right? We know he becomes Saul Goodman. We know that this is something that when he becomes Gene later, that he looks back on so happily. Like this is the, the peak of his life when he was Saul Goodman. But not when he was at HHM, not when he was really helping out senior citizens, but when he was Saul Goodman, helping out criminals. So I think that it's also symbolic of him not fitting in his new life. And I think that that's a big part of it. I, I also think that it's it's sort of like him flipping the switch at the end of last episode, that he's never just truly happy so far as we've seen. There's always something that he doesn't feel good about that doesn't really fit with him, that's not sitting right with him, no matter what it is, even if he's having success. Even if he's getting a new office or even if he's kind of uh, having success with a client or a case when he's doing wills or when he's doing kind of successful criminal work as a public defender, he's never really satisfied. And he's, it's never truly perfect for him. And I think this whole show is about a quest for him to find that sort of good fit. Uh, and I think that we, we, we know he does find it as Saul Goodman. Uh, but until then, it just everything he tries out just isn't quite right. I also thought it was funny in that scene, Rob. Did you catch he looks up through the sunroof? Do we get a little Chicago sunroof callback there? <laughs> I wasn't thinking that, but that's funny. <laughs> now, I think that every time I see a sunroof now, Rob. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> On the night that we get squat cobbler, we also get a callback to the Chicago sunroof. I think that's that's an interesting point that you make about maybe that Jimmy is the thermos. And I think that that is probably uh, the better metaphor than if Kim is the thermos, that he fits in that old car. He doesn't quite fit in this new car, in this new lifestyle. There's a scene in the episode also where Ed Bagley is playing the guitar and right. Jimmy just sort of is like lured from his desk to go and see what's going on at Bigley Jr.'s office. And he's playing the guitar and he tells him that, hey, this is just what I do to blow off some steam. You know, you got to have some sort of a release is running these scams like Slippin' Jimmy does. Is that his playing the guitar? Is that what he needs to do to be able to live in this world and sort of like lose his mind in these legal briefs? I think that's a great observation, Rob. I mean, I think that there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that I really think that, you know, that's where he feels his most kind of alive and at one with the universe and everything around him. That's where he really kind of feels like he's tapping into something that he's meant to do when he's running these cons. And it really does take him away. So I think that's a really good observation. And I think that's probably ultimately why when he does become Saul Goodman, things work out so well for him. He's just, he's, you know, he's chipper and it really, you know, everything's going great because he gets to do the law thing and he gets to be a con man at the same time. So this is fantastic. Anytime your job can be your release, Rob, I think that's fantastic. Isn't that where you are right now? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there we go. We're right all right then. We're all right. Right down in there. Yeah. So no, I think that's a really good observation. And, and on the coffee mug thing on the story sync app tonight on AMC, 
they um they showed the coffee mug and then they also showed a picture of Saul Goodman's coffee mug which said world's greatest lawyer. Oh. So yeah, so we can see that if the coffee mug is representative of Jimmy's old lifestyle there is kind of uh, James McGill uh when it becomes Saul Goodman, he's he he moves up a notch. Yeah, now the student is the teacher. Indeed, indeed. So we saw Ed Bagley playing the guitar in the episode. We also saw Chuck playing the piano. Do you think that Chuck playing the piano where he's unable to hit the note uh, that we see Ed Bagley, he's playing the guitar so well, is that this whole thing with Jimmy is bothering Chuck so much that he's unable to play the piano the way that he wants to? Yeah, that's isn't that fascinating that Chuck's release, if that's what that is, uh, is a source of stress for Chuck, that he can't do it correctly, and that there's constantly a metronome ticking in the background, just just bagging away at everything that he might want to do. Uh, and I think that that's, I think that there's some, some truth to that. There's also a ticking noise that's present when Chuck's alarm clock wakes him up. Uh, and it's just sort of this like ever present kind of background noise in Chuck's head. Uh, and it's fascinating because thinking about how he is you know, supposedly sensitive to these kind of hidden waves or hidden things. Uh, what is just buzzing around Chuck all the time? What is his major issue? Is it just that Chuck loves the law so much that he can't stand to see Jimmy involved with it? Um, is there something greater at play here? The piece that he was playing on the piano uh, is a piece from an opera about a man who discovers that his wife is in love with his brother. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if there is any kind of bigger issue between Chuck and Jimmy besides Chuck just being a guardian of the law and looking down on his brother as some sort of vagrant. Um, but there's definitely something ticking away and nagging at Chuck. And I think the Jimmy issue is a big, big, big part of it. And I think the metronome plays into that for sure. I don't think there's anything going on with him there in terms of that. But I feel like that the metaphor is probably more along the lines of is Howard falling in love with Jimmy? Yeah, maybe. Or is is the law? Is it the law? It was was Chuck married to the law and not married for real. And that now Jimmy seems to be doing really well in the law uh, and seems to be having success in this place that was Chuck's. That was, you know, that, that was Chuck's sacred relationship. Uh, and Jimmy's now taking advantage of that. So Howard is representative of that for sure. And I think that that plays a part. There's also the Ed Begley, uh, Michael McKean spinal tap connection, <laughs> where uh, if you're not familiar, the running gag in This is Spinal Tap, which is a, a documentary, a mockumentary, kind of gave birth to the mockumentary kind of form about a band uh, similar to the Rolling Stones, I would say, that is, uh, that's that been successful in England. And Michael McKean is one of the main members of Spinal Tap. But there's a running joke in the movie about how every drummer they've ever had has died in some crazy mm -hmm. way. Their first drummer was Ed Begley. Uh, and he, I believe he desired, he died in some kind of like gardening accident. Uh, the, the cops are just like, uh, it was better left unsolved. <laughs> so I don't know. This is a, there's actually a, a great, one of the early videos that looks like an Ed Sullivan kind of performance from this is Spinal Tap with Ed Begley playing drums in the background and Michael McKean singing and playing guitar, which is a really nice little uh, Better Call Saul kind of thing going on there that they're both playing instruments in this episode. So Chuck decides to show up at HHM during one of, of the sort of debriefings that they're having with everybody there. And it looks as though Jimmy is going to be like completely shaken up and it looks like he's like totally out of his game, but it's Kim that sort of like puts her hand on his leg 
And that does not distract him, but instead focuses him on being able to finish delivering the pitch. What did that say to you about where the Jimmy and Kim thing is going in regards to Chuck? It's just sad because Kim is so good for Jimmy. Like she recognizes that Chuck is a problem for him. She understands because she's she knows she knows the the betrayal there. And I think she knows better than anybody how it upset Jimmy. And and she knows how Jimmy was at Howard in the past. And she knows, I think, where, where Jimmy is on this Chuck issue. And I think that it's it's really tragic because, I mean, we don't know what happens with Jimmy and Kim. Maybe she was a silent kind of character in Breaking Bad the whole time. Uh, and, and they, you know, and we just don't know ultimately what became of her character. I don't think that's the case. I do think we're headed towards a kind of a sad and tragic ending. And it's a real shame because she's clearly very good for Jimmy. Uh, she understands the things that bother him the most. She can support him through those. When she puts the hand on the knee, he, he not only uh, picks it up and, and does okay, he's actually better. He gets kind of charming and offhanded about something he was sort of fumbling through before. So it's, it's really sad. She's very supportive of him and very good for him. Uh, and it, it's just knowing that it's probably not going to work out uh, and probably because of how he will become Saul, Saul Goodman. It's, it's, not, it's not great. What's Chuck's intention going to these meetings? Is that he knows the sort of shadow that he holds over his brother and he feels like, oh, my brother won't be able to deliver the presentation if I'm in the room. Yeah, what did you think about what Chuck said? He said, to bear witness. Is that, I mean, what is that? that what a jerk. F Chuck. Yeah, well, why do you take such exception to that? Uh, because I don't think he wants to quote unquote bear witness to Jimmy being good. I think he's just thinking purely negative thoughts and he really does want to cause a problem. I, I he's not just there. It's almost like uh, I saw someone on Reddit compared it to like a mafia goon showing up in court to intimidate a witness. Like I really think that that's the intention on Chuck. I don't think that there's any good intention whatsoever. I think it's nothing but negative. I mean, this is a guy who is still letting people wait on him hand and foot and deliver his groceries to the house and all of it and yet he's proving that he can go out of the house no problem when he wants to screw somebody over or put somebody in a bind so i'm not a fan of chuck in this episode whatsoever and that action was really smug and self-centered and i'm not a fan of it. it's a bad chuck check bad chuck check this is f chuck this is f chuck check all right well we haven't really talked at all about the mike storyline in this episode which was also really really fun picking up on everything going on with daniel and the baseball cards in this episode and so we go back to seeing mike at the toll booth Booth or at the parking lot booth. And so we Daniel wants to come in. He has a meeting with the police. And once again, Mike is trying to warn Daniel about, hey, this is a bad idea. You got to trust me on this. We find out that there's some sentimental value for Daniel in the baseball cards. And eventually Mike is able to talk him out of talking to the police that Mike will get into finding the baseball cards. And Mike pays a visit to Nacho and Nacho's dad upholstery warehouse. <laughs> yeah, what a nice guy Nacho's dad. Yeah. Don't try to upsell him, Nacho. Yeah, be honest. Be a good businessman. Don't be a jerk. This is great. Finally, we found a non-morally repugnant character in this universe. It only took us, what, two years? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What did you think of the, uh, the, I really like the Jurassic Park kind of coffee mug where Mike is sitting in the ticket, the toll booth there, and uh, he sees the coffee rumbling before he gets a hint that price is on the way. That's his sort of warning that some idiot in a, what was it, like a school bus for 60-year-old pimps is rolling up? <laughs> 
Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was great. Uh, did you do the story sync tonight, Rob? You know what? I couldn't get it because I didn't start the episode right when it was airing. And then story sync was not agreeable to me trying to watch the episode on my DVR. Well, let me give you, a, I thought, a really good question from the story sync, which had almost a 50-50 Ooh. split when I did it. Uh, the question was, so Mike has this scene with Price in the car, as you noted, and Price starts talking about how the baseball cards have sentimental value. And the question StorySync asked, asked was, does Mike agree to help Price find the cards because he knows Price won't give it up? Or does he agree to help Price find the cards because Price hit a nerve talking about fathers and sons? Oh, I thought it was a great question. It's interesting. I mean, I think it's much more the first thing. I don't think that it's a thing about the second thing. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that it, it seems like people have a kind of a read on Mike where he is still carrying around so much of that stuff about his son from the first season and from what we know about what happened in Philadelphia in the 5-0 mm-hmm. episode from season one. That this, this issue with what happened with his son is not only kind of what brought Mike to New Mexico. It's what sort of drives Mike to make the sort of morally flexible decisions. Now, the very same kinds of decisions that put him in league with someone uh, like Price, a.k.a. Daniel. And so I think that, you know, if you if you watch that scene again, if anyone's rewatching, um, take a look at the look on, on Mike Herman Trout's face, the, 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 the look that Jonathan Banks is playing when Price brings up the sentimental value of the baseball cards. It could just be that the sentimental that when Mike finds out they have sentimental value, he realizes Price is never going to let it go. And that's that. Uh, or it could be that it strikes a nerve. I think Jonathan Banks does a good job of playing it so that it could be interpreted either way. And I think that's really one of the things that this show does really well is kind of play the sort of gray areas really well. Yeah, the thing about Mike is that he's such a hard ass, but he's also like kind of a mensch too, I feel like. And I don't know if necessarily like that Mike is somebody who's lost a kid, like his son died in the police department. I just don't know if that's necessarily the same relationship of this was important to my dad. If that sort of like strikes the same chord as the relationship that Mike has to his son, I feel like it's still kind of a different thing. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think the the story sync viewers kind of uh, were a little bit more divided. And maybe that changed in the time since uh, maybe that poll's been different. But uh, I think that that's a, it's an interesting question. I th- the story sync, of course, is produced by the people that, that write, a, you know, a lot of the writer's assistants and people that are loosely connected. The interns in the show are the ones kind of generating a lot of the content for this, uh, the original content. So it is a, it's an interesting question that they asked because I think that they want us to be thinking about those sorts of things when we think about Mike, what his motivation really is and what is motivating him to do what he does uh, and to kind of put his neck out there. And of course, we know by the end of Breaking Bad, he ends up in a very awful place in part because of what happened with Kaylee, because he wants to take care of her, set her up, really have his granddaughter have a good life. Um, And it causes a guy like Mike, who seems to be very much uh, the kind of guy who doesn't stick his neck too far out there, that only goes into a situation if he knows everything about it at the jump, uh, to be the kind of guy who who a guy like Walter White can get one over on. So I think that this is a – when we're talking about the evolution of Jimmy McGill and Saul Goodman, we also think about the evolution of Mike Ehrman Trout. And I think that this is 
an interesting kind of note in the line of that. So Mike goes and visits Nacho and tells him about what Daniel is going to do. I feel like that Nacho does not seem to take this threat very seriously. He tells him, like, Mike tells him the whole thing, and Nacho's like, hey, that sounds like a you problem. Yeah, I mean, I love the work that Michael Mando is doing as Nacho. I think that's a great character. I really like the sort of attitude that he's bringing to the role. But we have to remember that he's not exactly the smartest criminal in the world, that Mike is clearly well above this guy in terms of the brains department. So, I, I mean, I think he's, he's definitely copping the wrong attitude about this, but Mike makes him see it a different way relatively quickly. So uh, he, he becomes a they, it becomes a them problem for or it becomes a them solution, I should say, uh, pretty quickly because Mike is able to, in, with very few words, I think, turn the tides on him. I mean, I was almost sort of at a loss as to why Mike feels so much that he needs to get involved with this. I don't know how Mike is that much of an accessory in what's going on with Daniel. Like Daniel is going to snitch on him of, hey, this guy was my bodyguard that brought me to these meetups as opposed to Nacho, who is the guy he was making these drug trades with. And he doesn't seem worried about it at all. Well, there you are back to the, you know, back to the, uh, the tie in with the fathers and sons thing and what's really motivating Mike. Because maybe you're right. Mike is a kind of a mensch. And so Price is, is, is gotta be one of the dumbest criminals ever in the Breaking Bad universe. I mean, he's right up there near the top of the list of stupidity. That'd be but a good Mike- podcast. Yeah, but well, we can do that. We can do the, power, the stupidity power rankings, Rob. Certainly the skateboarders from the first season are on there from Better Call Saul, but there are definitely other uh, candidates, but Price is right there near the top. Ba-da-ba-ba. And I think... Yeah, I think that I think we could. The price is not right. Right. This is there's some bad things going on. And Mike doesn't want to see a showcase showdown. He doesn't want any kind of showdown. He just wants things to work relatively smoothly uh, with price, maybe because he feels bad because price is just this sad kid who has sentimental value to his dad's baseball cards. He's not a kid, obviously, but Mike may be seeing him that way as a son more than anything else. Not Mike's son, but as someone's son. Because Mike's a little sensitive about that, there may be that. You're right, Mike might be a little worried about the blowback to himself, to Mike. Um, I think there's just also some concern that any of it could blow back to Mike. Like, maybe Nacho's going to take something out on price and feel like Mike was somehow tangentially involved with that and should be taken out too. Um, I don't know. Maybe Mike feels like it jeopardizes his business uh, with the veterinarian that this guy that the vet hooked him up with uh, is going to end up causing a problem. I think there's a lot that can go wrong here for Mike. So I think he's doing the right thing and being involved. I, I really I don't question that at all. So we ultimately get to the point where Mike arranges for Nacho to trade the baseball cards back to Daniel in exchange for the car. <laughs> Did it make you sad at all to see Daniel have to give the car back? Not really. Did it make you sad to see play uh, no more? Like he's, he's played out. Like I think it's kind of, I think it's funny. I th- Listen, we, we can't really go much further in this talking about Daniel slash price uh, without really talking about the backstory. Were, were you able to, have you heard anything about the backstory of this actor who plays, uh, who plays Daniel? No, tell me. Okay. Well, Vince Gilligan has kind of been making the rounds in the last couple of weeks telling these stories. He did it on the AMC uh, Insider podcast. Oh, is he the yo-yo guy? He's the yo-yo guy, Rob. He's the yo-yo guy. Okay. Yeah. So this guy, Mark Prox, uh, he is, he's the actor who plays Price. And he was just as a gag to make his friends laugh. What he did was he created a press release claiming that he was an activist in, in, in the environment, an environmental activist 
who was also a yo-yo champion. And he was going to local schools in, in like the Midwest, Wisconsin, kind of Illinois, those kinds of places, uh, and speaking to kids about yo-yos. He wasn't doing any of that, but he was telling small TV stations that he was doing this and that he would get to their morning shows and they would do, we've got a yo-yo champion here. Uh, tell us more. His name was K Stress, the Zim Zam Yo-Yo Man. Tell us more about what you're doing. And he has no idea how to yo-yo, Rob, and he they don't know that. They think he's a yo-yo champ, and they want to see him do the yo-yo tricks on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just screws it up from the, from the jump. He's, he's trying he, Every time he does one of these skits, he's trying to talk the whole time so they don't make him yo-yo. And as soon as he yo-yos, he just blows it, and they have to revert to their training about how to handle a bad incident unlike I highly recommend. Yeah, I watched a little well bit of it. Well worth the time. Well worth the time. Yeah, it's very Nathan Fielder. Very, very Nathan for you, Rob. Very Nathan Fielder. And uh, Vince Gilligan just thought that this was hilarious. And I think they cast the guy not really knowing that he was this Zim Zam Yo-Yo man. But when they found out, uh, Vince Gilligan apparently makes everyone on set watch it. He went online and bought a Zim Zam Yo-Yo man t-shirt. He's just all in on the Zim Zam Yo-Yo man. So I think that they, this guy, you know, that, that's playing Price is doing it with a lot of comedy. Also had a guest role in The Office, I think. Uh, so he's, he's being cast to kind of play this sad sack kind of loser. Uh, and who, he's just pathetic, Rob. He doesn't even, he doesn't even know how to keep the proper care of his baseball cards, Rob. He's not even keeping them. I sound like a total nerd here, but he's not even keeping them in top loaders. Like he's not keeping them correctly. He's just keeping them in an open box. He doesn't have fluorescent light shining on them. Well, yeah, that's true, which is which is funny. But he's got them in the box that, you know, like you get it at just a, a target and you just throw them in there and find them under your bed 10 years later. He's a, if he's got a Mickey Mantle rookie card in there, he's not he's not doing it correctly. I assure you. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> that's I fair. mean, it's just it's really funny that, that this character is just kind of all over the place. And it was I wasn't sad to see the Hummer go, but it was it was pretty funny. And of course, it peeled out of that parking lot, dust spreading up everywhere, really Really kind of humiliating and what does he say i, I wish i could have got an apology it's ridiculous this guy's ridiculous yeah well then let's talk about then we had the baseball cards returned back to daniel but then we had to have daniel still have to get out of being in hot water with the police and that's where mike calls in jimmy who comes in and we have that great scene where Daniel is really just like digging his own grave with these guys. And then finally Jimmy tells him to go get a cup of coffee and we get the story of the squat cobbler. Yeah, oh boy. Do we ever, do we ever, this is uh this is, I mean, is this the funniest scene in, in, in better call in breaking bad or better call Saul? There's some really funny stuff in breaking bad. Uh, the Jesse saying robots line comes to mind mm-hmm. when he thinks Ra- Ra- Walt makes wants to make robots. But I, I don't know. This is I was laughing the entire scene. Were you not cracking up at this? I mean, it might be. I'm trying to think maybe just going back to uh, the toilet scene from uh, the first season. Oh, but- give it to me, Chandler. You're such a big boy, Chandler. Yeah. I mean, this was <laughs> a really, really great scene. And just like, you know, Jimmy is selling and the cops like wait wait you know you're joking like they're like would i joke about this uh when he's going on and on and on i mean it's a really really great scene yeah he's given him all the urban dictionary kind of alternative names for this thing he goes the squad cobbler the hoboken squad cobbler the full moon moon pie i mean the boston cream splat rob the simple simon the ass man like you can tell they had a lot of fun with this apparently when uh, this is according to an interview that Alan Seppenwall had uh, with Peter Gold and with other people that were involved with the show, apparently when Bob Odenkirk, who of course is you know comedic legend, 
gets the script, there, there's not a specific name in there. And Bob Odenkirk says, you know, this this kind of sexual thing, this kind of fetish thing, they usually have a name. I feel like this thing should have a name. And so then they went off on this great tangent of creating all the names. And of course, that sort of litany of the names is is a really, really funny moment in this scene. Um, and also costume being involved. I mean, the whole, the way that it plays out, just drips and drabs of information where he gets the cops kind of interested in the story and wanting more and asking questions and he's providing. It's, fa- it's fantastic. This is, this is great, great stuff. And we get the whole story about how that he makes these videos of the pies and is crying yeah. into them. Uh, now, when Jimmy had to create the tape, I mean, what was sort of the mechanics of the, what was going on? Like, did he deliver the tape to the police and said, hey, look, if you don't believe my story, you have to watch this. I think it's best if we don't think too much about this. Uh, we could think enough about it to laugh at the scenario where Jimmy's running the camera and sort of directing the scene like, uh, hey, hey, no, you got to cry a little more now. You got to cry a little more like, oh, oh, the, your, your bonnet's falling off. You know, like you can't. Uh, this, not all pie sitters cry. Like, I just think that Jimmy directing the tape is a funny scenario to think about. But I started thinking, Jimmy says that he makes digital, you know, digital art, digital media or whatever. Those sorts of things are time stamped, right? Like, don't, don't they, isn't there, wouldn't there be a way to kind of get into the forensics and find out? I don't think we need to think too much about this. Hopefully he just handed him a VHS tape and said, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but I think it is 2000 and what year is this? 2005, 2006. I kind of feel like you could sort of like if you're shooting something like with like a digital camera, you can just like set what the time is on there. Change the date and, and set it back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, maybe. I think so. Maybe. I don't know. No, I'm not. Yeah, there's there's ways around it. But I, I mean, it's just it, it, yeah, I don't know. I don't want it like well, I think I said. I, I don't think we should get too much into it. I think it's better to just let's assume that the mechanics are Jimmy works with him to film the tape. It's just the two of them. I can't imagine Mike Ehrman Trout being in the room for that. I really do. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> are we done? Is this over? I want to leave. Yeah. You want to get any coffee with this pie? Like I can just picture Mike being very upset. Uh, but yeah, Jimmy works with Price to film the tape. Uh, and then Daniel slash Price uh, either delivers it to the police or Jimmy does. And that's apparently enough. I mean, look, I can see the, the, the cops watching about 10 seconds of this tape and being like, look, yeah, you can't even, if this, it. even if this is fake, I don't want to watch anymore. And if this guy's willing to go to these lengths to get us to stop talking to him, he didn't murder anybody. He, we, we, the worst crime he could have done is possess something that he shouldn't have that also got stolen. We're just going to let this go. Antonio, anything else from the show before we talk about some of our questions? Well, no, I mean, I just, I, I really think that the show, it, it's so good at the little things. I mean, I think that they're, the cinematography is great. The overhead shots of the, the baseball card transaction, the shot from the coffee holder, uh, just upside, you know, from that kind of looking up at the mug, not fitting is great. Uh, just everything that they do. There's a great moment where Mike, who was a stickler for that gate. Uh, and he, when price pulls in, he's like, pull around the corner and we'll talk about it. And he lifts the arm up saying, basically, I'm not going to collect money through here anymore. I'm not going to do my job. And we know he's so serious, but just little moments like that. This show just it hits a home run every week in terms of the little things that are in the shot compositions that really matter toward the theme and the narrative. And I think that this is just another week where they really hit a home run with that. Very, very fun episode, as we said at the top of the show. All right, Antonio, you ready for a couple of questions from our listeners? Yeah, let's hit a couple. And just to set this up, we are going to be taking questions on Facebook every single week uh, for this. You could also tweet them to us. I'm at Rob Cisternino. Uh Antonio is at AC Mizarro. And we're going to take your questions as well. 
every single week. Or you could also email us your questions as you watch the show. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. All right. So a couple of questions tonight. Let's take this question from Zach Pomeroy who wants to know, has there been an episode yet where Jimmy has won as much as this one? Oh, I think that's a great question. I mean, in terms of what Jimmy did in this episode, let's think about it. He, he, first of all, we didn't, I mean, this is not the top story of the night, but we sort of give it short shrift. Jimmy's doing a decent job. It seems like on the case, he's yeah. not only, he's not only coming up with good practical ideas for the case, for talking to their clients, for discovery documents. He's coming up with decent, like legal theories about the case and how the other side maybe not, uh, doesn't have the, the claims that they say they have because of actual work that Jimmy is doing and noticing. So not only is he doing a good job as James McGill, uh, the partner track member of, uh, the new law firm uh, of Davis and Maine, but he's also doing a great, just kind of the quintessential uh, Saul Goodman kind of story. Now we've seen him tell these stories before at the beginning of the series. In fact, the first Jimmy McGill that we meet uh, is him kind of giving the monologue about, Oh, to be 17 again. And think of all the things that you did when you were a kid. And we know we find out that his clients did horrible things and they don't, you know, they don't ultimately, uh, get off for that. But I guess the only other time where he really gives sort of this virtuoso type of performance is when he negotiates Tuco down from wanting to kill the skateboarders. But I think that's a pretty big win. I think that that th- these two things are about on par. I think I agree. Do you feel like that in the end, though, he ends up still a winner considering how the conversation ends with Kim? I think for now we have to say yes, just because it didn't seem like it ended things between them. And we didn't end the episode thinking, well, they're they're done. I mean, we already kind of know that they're done, but we don't know why. Um, maybe she ultimately, maybe you know, she's a victim of something. We don't really know. Uh, but I think by the end of this episode, I think he and Kim are at least on decent ground. I don't think it, things are done. So it's not a total, it's not a loss. It's just a, a caution. Like the bridge is shaking, but it hasn't crashed in yet. Laura Maria Olsen wants to know, had we seen Mike's car before this episode? It makes me sad to see it again at first, but wow, that red velvet. Yeah, this is uh, Mike's kind of iconic car that he, you know, drives throughout the the, the universe. And uh, I don't. I think we did see him uh, in this car at some point. I think we saw him crossing paths with his uh, daughter-in-law uh, in car to car kind of way. Um, but when we were in the kind of timeline where it was before he first got to Albuquerque, after he first got to Albuquerque, but before kind of it's all played out when the cops have come to kind of talk to him. Uh, I do think we see Mike in the car at that point, but yeah, this is Mike's, uh, this is Mike's iconic car. I don't, it doesn't have much sentimental value then, but I think it, it does become something that we associate with him, this classic look. And so I think that this is, it's funny to hear kind of Nacho's dad talking about it back and forth and the interior and how those sorts of things need to change because this does become a kind of a Mike character thing. I'm interested to know what the interior of the car is in the Breaking Bad universe. Did Mike ultimately get it reupholstered? Yeah. Did he think, you know what, Nacho, your dad was pretty much on the level. Yeah. I'm going to go back and give him some business. Dad was an honest guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It's a good question. We'll, we'll, we'll cover that at some point, maybe. We'll, re, we'll reupholster that at some point, Rob. And Jif Probst wants to know, how old does Mike look? Is Mike's age in the prequel throwing you off at all, Antonio? It's a little concerning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Aren't you? Are you? It sounds like you're there too, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, his complexion's not wearing well. I think he needs to get out of the desert sun for a while. Uh, this is, uh, he and the sun need to part ways, I think, is ultimately what needs to happen. But yeah, I think that this is, uh, I think this is, this is tough. This is a tough, tough balance to strike. They had the same issue with Mike's uh, granddaughter, of course, with Kaylee and her age. Uh, and she does seem to be the same age and or around the same age in the Breaking Bad universe as she is in the Better Call Saul universe. It's certainly not far enough apart that it's uh, differentiated. And here we have a, an older guy playing a younger version of himself in a prequel a couple of years after all the scenes were shot in the previous episode. So it's tough. It, 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 it did get me to thinking like, boy, this show really is going to have a problem if uh, something were to happen to Jonathan Banks. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's a terrible thing, Rob. But Jeff Probst put this thought in my head just now. Yeah. Yeah, wow. This is no good. No, no good. Mike is not, he's not looking great. Let's put it that way. I mean, Jonathan Banks, I, I think that this is, uh, I think that this is sort of, he's got to wear haggard uh, a lot in this, in this kind of thing. He's, he's got to be over it in almost every scene that he's involved in. And he, he's not just eye rolling. He's got a great look when Price is kind of, uh, just everything Price does. When he asks for the, he says he should have had the apology when he's talking about the baseball card. So there is a lot of, you know, eye rolling and kind of looking weary at all the scenes he's in. But I think that this is a, it's tough when you have an older actor playing younger. Yes. And then what is the time difference? So where does the breaking bad universe begin? What is that like 2007? Like when the show first came on? Yeah. With, there's been a lot of discussion about this and, uh, and there's been some tweets about it. Um, uh, you know, I've, people have been talking about it with me on Twitter. And I think that this is, it's difficult to pin down completely. We don't 100% know. We've been also talking about this in our comments at postshowrecaps.com. Uh, we don't 100% know exactly where we are in the universe. There are a, a few little hints that pop up from time to time. Uh, so, for example, one of the things uh, that popped up in the episode tonight, that was kind of a hint from Charles uh, Bickle said, you know, that Price is bragging about his Hummer H2 being new. And the H2 was first released in 2002. So we can probably peg the time frame of this show somewhere in the 2002-2003 range. We also had a Corky Romano reference, Rob. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Corky Romano was, uh, you know, was probably uh, something came out, I think, in October of 2001, uh, Chuck said, or Charles Bickle said. So um, probably the, the, this place takes place sometime after that. Who knows? How long mm -hmm. after it? So this is a little vague, but um, it's not like Mad Men where we're getting like a specific reference. We don't see Jimmy McGill turning on the TV and some team winning the World Series or something like that. Um, but yeah, this is a uh, we're, we're looking in the 2002, 2003 range. I think. Yeah. OK. So several years, several years before the Breaking Bad universe. So basically, Jonathan Banks is basically trying to be or playing the role of what he would be 15 years ago. Basically, something in that neighborhood, because keep in mind those scenes that he's shooting in season three of Breaking Bad were probably shot, uh, you know, sometime four five, six years ago at that point, at this point. Uh, and he's going to be. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. It, it's tough. And I, I'm not saying they're doing a poor job of it. There are things you can do with lighting and makeup and things. I, I don't think they're really selling out to try to make him look younger. They're not putting a, a terrible wig on him or anything mm. like that. Um, they, and they, you know, they're not really breaking their backs to do it. But I think that because he does such a great job of looking weary and haggard all the time. I think that there's a natural inclination to see his character as looking tired uh, and not really full of pep in his step. And yeah. I think that that's difficult. 
I have to say, I also thought it was jarring in the first season, like Saul flashback stuff, the Jimmy flashback stuff to when he's like 20. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's be real. Like Bob Odenkirk's not doing a much better job of this. Like, yeah, he was, yeah. Kevin Costner. He ain't like, this is not, not exactly playing. Well, this is tough. I mean, when you look, this is not, right. This is not an easy business that they're engaged in here at, uh, at better call Saul. Like, uh, you know, we need like a, we need like a gerund noun, Rob. So, so we can, improve this like we need like a making up Saul or you know an, an unaging Saul kind of show here like something needs to happen yeah is that what we want for a hashtag oh I don't know I wasn't I wasn't I, I wasn't aiming but yeah I mean I don't know I, I'm, I'm on the F Chuck train man I'm tired of this I think we could we could just call the show effing Chuck like this is they talk about a gerund noun like I love Michael McKean we've talked about this a ton on this podcast but man this Chuck he the way they shot him tonight just kind of turning toward the camera and profile and looking like a villain like chuck is rough like he is he is a he is really playing a a lot of uh, angst and negativity toward jimmy and doing a really good job of it is chuck the season two big bad <laughs> that's a good question i mean i he ended up being the the sort of secret season one big bad right like we didn't see that as we were watching it that it was ultimately going to play out that way um there were kind of hints of it but he was really kind of the most evil guy in season one by the end of it. I don't know. In a universe where you've got a Tuco Salamanca name drop that can just happen, uh, it's hard to see uh, Chuck as the ultimate big bad of this season. Uh, but I don't know. The sky's the limit. I, it, it, we're, it's going to be fascinating to see how Chuck kind of relates to Jimmy throughout this. And is he going to rattle him, steer him off course, try to sabotage him, stick his neck out? What's he going to do here uh, to really ultimately kind of put the squeeze on Jimmy? Because he's not happy about this. All right. Let's do hashtag big bad Chuck for this episode. <laughs> big bad Chuck. All right. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. All right. Of course, you can send us your tweets every week. I'm at Rob Sesternino. Antonio is at AC Mizarro. That's with two Z's, one R. If you have a hard time spelling any of that, you can go ahead and see us on postshowrecaps.com. We'll have the link to our Twitter and all that stuff. We can also get your comments there as well. All right, Antonio. So we will be back next Monday night to talk about all this in episode number three. And again, no O's in the name so far this season. Yeah. Well, we have switch uh, and, and yeah, this is uh this is interesting what we're doing here. I, do you feel like there's any kind of consistency to this whatsoever? Switch and cobbler. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, going back to Breaking Bad, you had like the season two thing where it was like the word spelt out that there was going to be some like they like foreshadowed the plane crash in season two. So I'm not sure if ultimately Vince Gilligan's up to something here. Well, and there was, of course, half measures and full measures. There was cats in the bag and the bags in the river. Uh, there were a lot of kind of connective tissue between certain episodes, but not a, not a consistent thing like there was with season one of Better Call Saul uh, or with, uh, you know, with the season two of Breaking Bad. So whether we're going to get something that's connected here, maybe the, the plot will reveal itself. I don't personally see any connection with Switch and Cobbler, but maybe we'll get there. Next week's episode is Amarillo. So we're back to the O. Oh my gosh, back to the O again. We're going to Texas. Texas, we're going to Texas, yeah. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Why does Jimmy have to go to Texas? Well, uh, that's that's a burning question that we'll find out. Sandpiper headquarters. Sandpiper's probably got something there that I think that that's a good, uh, that's a good way of looking at it. It's possible Mike's going to get something that's going to take him to Texas and Jimmy's going to want to help out. I think a lot of people would, would like to see a sort of caper with Jimmy and, uh, and Mike, a little road gig. So that could happen as well. Oh, that'd be huge. 
Yeah, that would be huge. Speaking of road trips to Texas, Antonio and I talked about another show where characters visited Texas in 11-22-63, which is now on Hulu with James Franco. We did a most shows recap about that. You can hear that on postshowrecaps.com. That's very exciting. Oh my gosh, Rob, your Segway game is on fleek. <laughs> yeah. That was fantastic. Sure, yeah. Sure. 11-22-63, Hulu original series. Listen to our most shows recap and give it a shot if you think you'd like it. Yeah, very fun stuff. All right, of course, uh, we'll be back with more Better Call Saul podcasting next week. Subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. Until then, Antonio, anything else? No, just uh, I'm just happy to have Better Call Saul back. It's so fun uh, to watch this fantastic show unfold week to week. And I'm happy. To, I love talking to you about it, Rob. Uh, I love talking to you about it as well. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye.